Computers are great at playing chess. But despite repeated attempts, we have been unable to design a robot butler that can do a simple load of laundry. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Janelle Shane. She's the writer and chief experimenter behind the blog AI Weirdness, which is where leading-edge machine learning tips over to crash and burn in hilarious ways. What brings her to this show is that she is the author of the book, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You, How Artificial Intelligence Works and Why It's Making the World a Weirder Place, which is as funny as it is illuminating on questions of why I do not yet have the robot butler that was promised in science fiction of my childhood, or even why you shouldn't trust AI to bake you a cake. Uh, Janelle Shane, welcome to Kobo. Hey, thanks so much for having me here. You are an optics research scientist by day. How did you branch out into making AI do improbable things? <laughs> well, you know, my interest in AI uh, came first, actually. So that's where I started my doing my research. Uh, we're in a lab that was applying evolutionary algorithms to different kinds of pro uh, problems. And one of those problems turned out to be the question of how do you shape a laser pulse to break apart chemicals in specific ways to get particular products that you want. And so I jumped right in, started applying AI to that problem, and then after a while realized that once we understood it well enough to uh, apply the AI, uh, we didn't. We realized we didn't need it AI anymore. The effect in our case was just as simple as turning the laser power up and down. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that turned out to be an illustrative sort of example in how a lot of AI research goes and how AI can be a last resort to a lots, lot of problems is applied right now in ways that it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, but I was always had this interest in AI because it, it is such an interesting, you could almost say a phenomenon. You set up a computer program in a particular way and it does weird stuff kind of predictably uh, and weird stuff that humans wouldn't think of doing. Uh, so that I always had that interest in mind. And uh, then uh, when I saw somebody post uh, a experiment with a text generating uh, AI program, uh, and they were generating cookbook recipes, and they were the most hilarious things I'd ever seen. Uh, so, you know, they it had no idea which ingredients it should use. It was misspelling most of the ingredients or making up things that didn't even exist. I think I completely lost it at the shredded bourbon. And you know, it was just once I finished reading all of the ones and the guy's name uh, was Tom Brewer. And once he once I'd read, read all the recipes that he posted, I wanted there to be more in the world. And that's where I learned how to start generating these and doing these experiments myself. So what was the first experiment that you did yourself that you then you know, unleashed upon the world? It was cookbook recipes because okay. I had seen an example of how to do that. So the Silicon Gourmet is the name of that first post on neural nets. And up till that time, that uh, blog had been my grad school optics, you know, 
nanofabrication blog. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of sciencey. I already have this blog started. So I'll throw some neural net experiments on there too, just so I can show them to people or have somewhere to point people toward. It turns out other people thought these were kind of funny too. The title of the book comes from an experiment where you trained an AI to create pickup lines. So just to give people a sense of how these things come together, how do you teach an algorithm to do that? Yeah, so uh, what I needed to do was come up with examples for it to copy. Because these uh, AI programs learn by example. And uh, so you give it a bunch of things that are in the set of kinds of text you want to learn to generate, and it will learn to predict, okay, given the first couple of letters in what are these things of like a line of a recipe or a pickup line, it will learn to by via trial and error to predict what comes next in that line. And so I needed to first collect a bunch of examples of uh, pickup lines. And actually that step nearly killed me. Because I don't know if you've read like lists of pickup lines on the internet lately, but they're terrible. Like if they're not offensive, they're cheesy or just like don't work or, you know, it's they're bad. And so it was definitely at that point that I almost gave up. Uh, but the next step then is to once I have this list and I think I only managed to get like a couple a few dozen of these things before I just gave up and discussed. Uh, but once you once you have your list, you have to give it to this program. And this particular case, it was uh, learning from scratch. It had never seen English before. All of these letters that it's trying to predict in you know what order they should come, they're all represented by numbers. So if you looked under the hood, it would be predicting like what strings of numbers come after another. Like it has no, it has to learn completely from scratch. And like you, you can see it generating output as it's checking itself. And its first few generations are just garbage. It's, you know, a bunch of random letters and punctuations, and it starts to learn to use spaces, but it overuses them. And then you have like, it goes through a phase where everything is a space and there's no text. And then it'll pick a favorite word that you'll see, like with the recipes, like the first word that I saw it learn to uh, produce was the word teaspoons, because that comes up a lot in recipes, but it couldn't spell it quite right. So you would get like, it'd be the teaspoon. So it's kind of fun to watch it figure that out. And then it starts adding, figuring out more and more sequences and stuff that it can put together. And eventually uh, you just have to stop the training and say, well, it's gotten about as far as it's going to get. So either it's not making any more progress or it has memorized your input data set and is just giving you your data back word for word. It's like, well, this is what you wanted, right? Like, yes, but, but okay. Yeah. Technically that is a perfect answer to the request to generate something like this is to generate exactly this again. Uh, so, so usually at some point you just have to stop learning and say, well, okay, that's all it's going to do. Like it does, it definitely does not progress to the, now I'm going to take over the world. No, got to shut it down. That's no, alas, it just just gets more and more boring. It's not even even figuring out where the switch is. 
So what is it about what the algorithm's doing that makes it, it kind of capable of being unintentionally hilarious? You know, it's making things that are kind of shaped like pickup lines, but not you know, very good at picking anyone up. Yeah, well, it puns are really tough because they rely on a lot of like context and these algorithms tend to be pretty bad at broad contact and like making connections so the puns always fall completely flat and then if you've got a one of the, a smallish algorithm that's just trying to learn english from scratch from a few examples there's a lot about english that it doesn't quite get you know as a reliable pattern it can reproduce so you'll get weird grammar of sentences especially the one i was working on with the pickup lines like it's got a limited memory so it won't remember what it said and it won't remember how long this sometimes if it's really short it won't remember how long the sentence is that it's working on and you get these doozies of a sentence that's like it's run on repeated it's almost like a chant sort of mantra thing yeah <laughs> all sorts of weird things it just not cannot get that humans would so you you end up with uh just so that I could provide some examples, uh, mm -hmm. pick up lines that sound like this. You must be a Tringle because you're the only thing here. And hey, baby, you're to be a key because I can bear your toot. And are you a candle because you're so hot of the looks of you? It's just I'm swept away. I I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why anyone else isn't. There's a there's a real risk in examples like this of just writing the whole field off and saying, "See, AI is dumb. It was all just a lot of hype." But one of the things I really like about the experiments in "You Look Like a Thing" and "I Love You" is that um, you manage to show two things simultaneously. First, you know the output itself, which is funny, but also you reveal that it's kind of amazing that they can even do as much as they can do. Mm -hmm. You know, if, you know, if you can only remember a few words or letters into the past, it's kind of amazing that you can come up with something that sounds almost human. Um, and mm -hmm. I was wondering if you were trying for both of those, like both to show the capability and that sometimes it just runs at a wall and bashes into it. Yeah, I really was trying to show both sides because it's interesting with these algorithms is that we kind of don't have a good intuition about what's easy versus hard for them versus easy and hard for us. We tend to, we almost have reverse sorts of capabilities. And so you get, for example, a lot of people have this intuition that playing chess is really hard and really difficult, you know, high prestige, you must be very smart if you're good at chess. And whereas we tend to hold things like doing laundry or housework as sort of low prestige sort of things and say, well, that must be an easy problem and chess must be the hard one. But if you look at AI, it's actually the other way around. So chess is a narrow constrained problem and computers have beaten our chess grandmasters uh, soundly for uh, many years now. Like computers are great at playing chess, but despite repeated attempts, we have been unable to design uh, a robot butler that can do a simple load of laundry. So we, we have this kind of skewed perspective, and I think it 
that kind of intuition, we need better intuition to serve us well when we're trying to think of whether to trust an AI that's going to be, for example, suggesting who we're supposed to hire for a job. Like, oh, AI must be great at figuring that out. Well, you know, is this really in line with AI's strengths? The theme that you come back to multiple times in the book is that the more narrowly you can define the problem, the more constrained you can make the space in which the AI has to work, the the smarter it's going to appear. Um, yeah. You, When you were talking about recipes, you used machine learning to generate a carrot cake recipe. And looking at the ingredients, at least, yeah, it actually did pretty well. You could imagine all of those things as being essentially cake-like or mm-hmm. you could and you could imagine throwing them into a, into a bowl and getting something that if it didn't look like cake would at least you know kind of fool an untrained observer um but then as soon as you branched out from cake to multiple you know different kinds of recipes everything kind of falls apart you know the the wider <laughs> the problem gets the harder it is to produce something that seems that seems reasonable yeah Yeah, exactly. And we run into this all the time. You know, if you think of self-driving cars, the problem of can you stay on the lines and obey the road signs, that's a fairly narrowly constrained problem. And self-driving cars have been pretty good at that for a while. But when you bring in and can you deal with all the unexpected stuff that happens on the road, like now there's a billboard with a stop sign on it, what do you do? Or, you know, there's an escaped emu. You've never seen an emu before. What do you do? And that is what self-driving cars are really struggling with right now to try to handle these kind of, get rid of these unexpected and sometimes very serious fatal uh, glitches. You make it clear in your book that what we call AI is really a a basket of techniques and that Each one can be good for a certain kind of problem and not others. And the first part of the book introduces us to these families of machine learning algorithms. We have neural networks and Markov chains, generative adversarial networks and random forests and evolutionary algorithms. And part of the challenge in a machine learning implementation is just figuring out which one to use. So I I wanted to try a a real world example uh, with you. So... Let's say I wanted to teach an algorithm to write new reviews for this podcast so that it looked like I had millions of raving fans um, <laughs> and that there were like just thousands of reviews, all of which, you know, extolling you know, your virtues as an interviewee and my virtues as an interviewer. What would be the the tool that you would first reach for if you were going to try to generate my you know my army of podcast reviewers? Oh, now that's an interesting question. It depends whether you want to generate completely new reviews or whether you want to change all your existing reviews to be more positive. Oh, I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. <laughs> but let's assume first that I, I think first we need just like a lot of reviews. So we need you know we need from scratch just thousands of raving fans Mm -hmm. and then we probably have some reviews in there that you know maybe aren't as great as they should be um (laughs) almost certainly my fault and not the fault of the guest uh so then we probably have to change those as well yes yeah so probably a text generating recurrent neural network similar to the one that i trained uh to do 
to do the pickup lines might be what you want to go with. If you want these people to sound like they are not computers, you probably want to start with a bigger one than the one I use. So uh, they've got some big ones right now that are trained on a lot of internet text and including like there's a lot of reviews on the internet and so if you give it if the text you give it to complete to predict what comes next is five handcrafted glowing reviews of your podcast mentioning you and the podcast by name and then you say okay now predict what comes next after these five glowing reviews uh, we've got modern algorithms that can figure out that prop what a review generally looks like and the things it should mention and kind of like okay here's the pattern we're saying nice re review type things using these kinds of keywords and that will generate a lot of reviews. Uh, but the problem with something trained on the internet, of course, is that there's you, it's not entirely reliable. You would want to read every one of those reviews by yourself. You're on your own and really pay attention to what they're saying because they'll maybe drift off topic and say, oh, yes, and you're co-starring with, you know, Janelle Monet and doing this uh, podcast or something. And you're like, mm, no, uh, that's incorrect. So it will generate incorrect things. And it can also like maybe say things that you would not like your fans to say, whether it's not, you know, it drifts from being complimentary or brings in stuff. You're like, oh, no, I'm going to content moderate that right out. That's not that's not a good thing to say on the Internet. Uh, so, yeah, some some progress would be some definitely some human editing would be required. And this is this gets to a challenge that you um, that you describe in the book, you know, one of the many, which is you know, training data matters a lot. And the kind yeah. of information that you're using to train your algorithm can result in some very unintended consequences, especially when your training set is the Internet. Oh, no, it has yeah. a lot of things on it that are that are yeah. not necessarily things that I want to have in my reviews of the podcast. Um, but yeah. there's a lot of it out there, and it can do a really good job of convincing an algorithm that that's perfectly reasonable speech. Yeah, this this is indeed a a problem. We're at the situation right now where if you want the highest degree of coherence and like believable English you have to go with one of these giant models and right now mainly the training data that you can get that's big enough for it to pick all of this English language structure up is the internet and so then you're stuck with the internet as your training data that is a real problem uh, in modern text generation actually that we're really having to reckon with and they haven't figured out how to provide the the subsets that that's just the nice internet uh, or the <laughs> non-racist internet. <laughs> so that's, that's where problems arise. Yeah, this is a problem. It, it would be nice and I maybe would expect to see the field getting better at training algorithms with smaller, more curated data sets and maybe uh, we can improve things that way. Uh, the second part of the book talks about some of what we've just been describing, things that make AI not work as intended. And one of the things that you make clear over the course of it is that machine learning is is like the story of the monkey's paw. You know, if you say, 
make me a ham sandwich, there is a very real chance it will try to turn you into a ham sandwich. <laughs> How much of AI use or misuse is about defining the problem correctly that you're trying to solve? Oh man, it's all about trying to define the problem correctly. Uh, that is the biggest thing. You have to understand your problem so well and all the possible hacks and shortcuts and misinterpretations and you know, even collecting the training data for training a text generating algorithm. Like you're giving the algorithm the task, copy this data and what you're telling it to copy really, really matters. And we get into like, how do you even, maybe you're thinking about your train your training data, uh, you know, you have to think about the problem so clearly. There's an example of, you know, an algorithm that was trained to predict uh, risk factors for, and I think it was uh, risk factors for a stroke. And they found out that the risk factors were all these seemingly, seemingly unrelated things but they were all things that would bring you into the doctor's office for a checkup. So what they were not actually predicting were people who were gonna have strokes. They were predicting people who were going to be treated for strokes because they had access to healthcare and maybe happened to have been in the office to be checked out, that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's like, you know, chronic athlete's foot as a stroke predictor and- yeah. uh... <laughs> Yeah, and um, if you don't have healthcare access, you're not going to go to the doctor to get seen for that or for the strokes. So, yeah, it's it's tricky like that. Until I read this book, I had no idea how often algorithms hack the simulations that they're in. It's a problem. <laughs> we tend to train a lot of algorithms in simulation, especially the ones that are supposed to be like using real world mechanical robotic arms to do something or driving a real world bicycle or something like that because it takes so much trial and error that it would take hundreds of thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of busted up bicycles or robot arms or whatever in order to arrive at the solution in the real world so we make these simulations but no simulation is perfect like there's all these sort of sh shortcuts that we have to do to bake the math kind of work without having to simulate an entire universe down to the atomic level. And these shortcuts, it turns out, uh, can uh, be exploited by uh, these machine learning algorithms because they don't know any better. Like their solution is in the simulation, for example, to get from point A to point B. And if they figure out that there's a way that they can hack the rounding errors in the simulation to give themselves free energy and levitate themselves and avoid friction, and they will do that because it's a perfectly good solution according to what we asked it of. You know, this, what have you asked for? You've asked it to get to point B however it can in this simulation. There is also a whole chapter on class imbalances, which mm -hmm. as someone educated in the humanities, I immediately thought was about rich algorithms versus poor algorithms, but it <laughs> turns out that is not the case. It means something different here. Can you describe that for us? Yeah. So this is the, this is again, another <laughs> machine learning hack these algorithms tend to do, which is if you give it the problem of, let's say you've got a million customers you want to predict which ones are going to leave in any time period. Well, you know, in any given time period, maybe 99% of your customers don't really leave. And so your 
algorithm can figure out pretty quickly that it can get nearly 100% accuracy for free by predicting none of your customers ever leave. <laughs> so, and that's what we call uh, class imbalance. Anyone who has spent time near AI research or the output of it uh, knows that bias is a problem, yeah. that the data sets that you use to train an algorithm can have unintended consequences. And and you brought up the example of reviews of Mexican restaurants. And I was wondering mm. if you could unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah, this is a really interesting research project someone did with uh, looking at uh, how different restaurants were being rated in online reviews and discovering that if you went through and used an algorithm to figure out whether a re given review was positive or negative, the algorithm would tend to rate all the reviews of Mexican restaurants as negative reviews, even though when you, as a human, you go back and look at the data, you're like, actually, no, they said it was great. Why is this coming out negative? And so they dug into this a little further and learned that the when the algorithm had figured out how to tell the difference between positive and negative tech, sentiment and text, it had learned that on the internet. And on the internet, a lot of people are using the word Mexican in sort of uh, pejorative or just in negative news coverage uh, because the internet is written not by, you know, is overrepresented by certain people. So uh, we could just say it's full of racists. It's okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the internet's yeah, full yeah, of racists. Of, yeah. And so the algorithm learned that Mexican was an indication of low, you know, low positivity in a given bit of text and said, oh, this must have been a negative review. One of the things that you described that I thought was interesting is that one of the best ways to detect bias in algorithms is to have people working on the algorithms who are of diverse backgrounds. How does that help? Well, first of all, even if it didn't help solve the this particular problem, it would still be the right thing to do. But yeah. one of the ways that it helps is that you have people who, because of their lived experience, are really ready to notice these problems to be aware of these problems and hopefully be able to catch them before they go too far in the development process of course the other piece is not just people who are working on the engineering implementation level but also have people in positions of power so that when the engineers say hey we have a problematic algorithm yes there's high engagement but it's you know, it's not doing, it's not promoting good posts. Like these are terrible, divisive, horrible, racist posts. We should moderate those out. And you want the people in the position of power to say, yes, we should moderate those out. We do not want to post them as opposed to someone who says, nah, why does it matter? We're getting good engagement. And that seems to be coming up and biting researches over and over again. We seem to see it fairly often with facial recognition. A particular algorithm may be really, really good at classifying faces as long as they are white faces. And then other than that, not, not nearly as accurate. Yeah. So from a, from a purely technical question, is that because training sets are too biased towards white faces? Is that because the way the algorithms themselves have uh, been trained or configured? What creates that negative outcome that we look at and go, what you know, yeah. why can't this you know why can't this algorithm figure this out correctly? 
Right. Well, you're you're exactly right that the training data is definitely uh, part of it. So you've got if you've got training data that over represents white faces, then the algorithm is just going to be better at that. Uh, the other another problem that doesn't come up as often is also important is benchmarks. So a lot of the benchmarks that you're testing your algorithm again, try against trying to figure out if it's better than other algorithms that have been published before is to say, okay, let's use a standard data set and test ours on that data set and see how it does. And a lot of these standard benchmark, you know, comparison problems are super heavily skewed uh, toward white faces, for example. So that comes in as well <laughs> as, an, as a problem. And then also you have people who are giving the go, no go, shall we roll this out, shall we not, who don't say, okay, before we do anything, let's check and see if there's bias there. Oh, if there is, we will not roll it out. Instead, you have people who say, eh, we'll fix it later, or who didn't test it because they didn't want to know. But then when people bring it up, as famously happened with a really influential paper showing, hey, you know, a couple of years ago, these algorithms have bias. And now it's been a few years, there's been time, these algorithms still have bias. And it's, it's kind of pointing back to similar to the idea of providing some kind of goal for machine learning algorithm to optimize. And if you choose that goal incorrectly, it will solve the problem in a way you don't want. We are essentially some of these companies are acting a lot like AIs with faulty reward functions, <laughs> where they're getting <laughs> rewarded for one thing, which is not actually the thing we as a society really should reward them for, and they don't get penalized enough when they have these really serious problems with them. Are you saying that there may be negative externalities that come from rewarding a company entirely on engagement and advertising views? It is just possible. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of a, a transition in the in the way that you've been out there in the world as a, a as a person talking about AI. AI weirdness kind of grew out of these experiments you had, but it's also sort of flipped you over to becoming kind of a public educator on what AI is and what it can do. And I'm wondering if there was a, a conscious switch that flipped for you on that, or if you've just sort of evolved into it along with the ice cream flavors and everything else? It was definitely not a conscious thing. I mean, it was a, you know, science communication blog from the get-go, but I was not really expecting anybody to take my ideas seriously. I mean, I was posting about, you know, funny AI-generated recipes and paint colors. Like, clearly this is a joke blog. But then people would contact me for questions about, hey, there's a new paper that just came out and okay, I guess I got to go read this paper. Or uh, they would ask me for comments on high profile AI mishaps that happened in the news. And so people had these questions. They saw me as somebody who might know something about the answers. And uh, <laughs> so that was part of it. People would ask, would also, like I saw this pervasive, people would read my blog and say, wait, how is this AI? Because AI is really smart, isn't it? So how is this the same thing that's like, having all these commercial successes and people tell us is about to take over the world. And I, and I would say, oh, well, 
there is maybe some interesting things to be said about taking AIs out of their comfort zone and really showcasing where the cracks are, where they're not so good, where they really differ from how humans would approach the same problem. Is one of the challenges in talking about this field that you can sort of skate along the surface with recipes and the names of different kinds of paint, but if you want to talk about what works and doesn't work, you quickly dive below into this ocean of technical detail. Yeah, there is a lot of different ways to get deep into different aspects of machine learning. I mean, I studied some machine learning algorithms, but I didn't really get deep into any of it to use. It's a weird kind of position to be in where I'm almost... I'm reading these works done by the people who, for example, have been doing really groundbreaking work in uh, bias. There's a lot of been a lot of really great research coming out of there, and I'm kind of reading it, understanding it, and trying to point people toward it or summarize it and say, "Hey, you know, in a nutshell, in a tweet, you know, here is here's this cool thing someone found or noticed." Uh, so they, but yeah, there's there's so much technical depth and uh, so much to understand. And I'm, you know, uh, only so many hours in a day. One thing that becomes clear as as you go through the book is that AI brains just aren't like human brains. But you do touch on some places where they have functions that are similar. Uh, You mentioned even examples where you can kind of perform brain surgery on a neural network are where are the places where there is that little bit of mapping between what some of the algorithms are doing and how our brain itself works yeah there there are some and in fact uh, the origins of this whole class of like one of the most popular class of ai machine learning algorithms is called artificial neural networks and these were designed as kind of simulations on how networks of interconnected neurons like in the brain might learn to solve problems and so those have been around for decades and decades and people have said oh yeah you know in in these artificial virtual neurons we can connect them to do basic uh, calculations uh that brain surgery (laughs) thing that you mentioned yeah if you cut out particular Uh, neurons from these interconnected neural networks, you will find that it will change the way that the whole network behaves, or you can find neurons that are largely responsible for one task, like, you know, maybe representing couches or something, or placing couches in a generated landscape or something, then you knock that out and suddenly the couches are gone. Uh, (laughs) things like there are some analogs with people. Uh, One of the interesting kind of close analogs with how is in the visual system. So they, there is a recent paper kind of looking at, we've, we've known for a while that when uh, mice and people kind of create mental maps of a environment when moving through, we tend to have neurons in a kind of grid that are arranged in a sort of grid that are responding together to the 
different parts of the landscape. And we have seen in the artificial neural networks, we also get these sort of virtual, very similar sort of grid structures popping up. So yeah, it's been really interesting. And so you're you're seeing the neural network starting to create you know effectively structures that are quite similar to how the brain tries to process similar problems. Yeah, at a much simpler level. One of the topics that comes up over and over in the different kinds of neural networks that you describe is the issue of memory. That algorithms aren't great at holding things in memory, and so when you're working with uh, a recurrent neural network that's mm-hmm. trying to generate pickup lines, it's it's only holding a few characters that it's already generated kind of in its mind as it's trying to predict the next ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was shocking to me because it, like I I I personally can't imagine what that, <laughs> what that would be like. Um, but it also seemed like that was the biggest constraint to or one of the big constraints to machine learning getting better. And so I was wondering if that's something that has a chance to sort of change or break through over time um, and therefore you know, see another kind of quantum leap in how and how good these algorithms are at kind of simulating and predicting human speech. Yeah. And that is uh, one of the things that has, I think, probably the aspect of machine learning that has changed the most even since I uh, put together the book is that uh, people have managed to find ways to give these text generating neural networks more memory. Uh, So the modern ones that we're working with now can keep maybe, you know, a couple thousand characters in memory at once. And so you can get callbacks to things that happened paragraphs ago. It can sort of keep track of the parts of a recipe and sometimes not even use vanilla five times in the same recipe. <laughs> so that is one thing. And, and you know, there's been some clever programming to figure out how to build in like multiple levels of looking at large scale versus zooming in on small like sentence level or word level details. There's been some smart uh, use of that. And there's also been just a heck of a lot of computing power chucked at these uh, algorithms. So uh, when OpenAI released their GPT-3 algorithm, they had trained it on, as they put it, most of the internet. And it has way more memory and it's huge and i i forget how much the training cost but i think it was i want to say it was in the tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in computing time that it took to train this algorithm so uh i had been training the the pickup line generator and some of these early recipe generators i've been training that on my own laptop like a 2010 macbook so there's also that makes a huge difference yeah you were teaching an earthworm how to make uh, pickup lines and now you might be able to get something with a few more you know slightly more brain capacity yeah we may be we may be up to bumblebee possibly does that mean, though, that one of the things that's been such a characteristic of the algorithms that that you've been using is that their limitations are kind of what create the hilarity? You know, the fact that it can't remember 
what the beginning of the sentence was by the end of the sentence is how you end up being a thing and I love you. Yeah. Um, is Does that mean we're just going to start seeing you know, less humor coming out of the experiments as the algorithms get better? The humor has changed. So things that were funnier before aren't very funny, aren't as funny now. Now, oh, like, oh, it, yeah, that sounds like a boring human wrote that sort of thing. Or, you know, if you ask it to, to write a blog now, it will generate this really generic, like you could skim right over it, you know, self-help or business wellness or whatever kind of uh, thing. So it's bet much better at reader readable boilerplate text. Like if you were falling asleep while someone was reading this to you, you might not notice that it doesn't all make sense. So yeah, I have had to change my techniques. There's some stuff that I can do now that I used to not be able to do. Uh, interest and you know, interestingly, I did revisit the pickup lines with uh, much more competent uh, neural network. Uh, so using like the modern GPT three, and I I've been resisting this because I thought, well, if it's read all of the pickup lines on the lists on the internet, then surely it's got like the most common ones memorized by now, or just. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be much fun, but eventually I did try it just to see. Uh, and actually, <laughs> I was surprised that it was not uh, as far along as I had expected it would be. So I would, I think one of my favorite ones is I'm losing my voice from all the screaming your hotness is causing me to do. <laughs> Excellent. Or there is another one. You look like Jesus, if he were a butler in a Russian mansion. Yeah. I'm I would swipe right just <laughs> just on the basis of that alone. I, you wrote a piece in the New York Times in 2019 about the feral scooters of Central Park. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. It is a, it is a story that everyone should go out and read. But for those of our listeners who are trapped under something heavy and can't press pause, can you talk about it a bit? Sure. So this was this is a really fun experiment. I was supposed to write what was, you know, this sort of op-ed from the future. This was what this series was called. And uh, I wanted to write it about machine learning algorithms that are kind of similar to what we have today because there are so many stories about ai that's like most almost all of the stories about ai are about ais that are light years beyond what today's technology can do and so i had come across i remembered reading a tweet by actually is a georgia tech ai professor who was complaining grumbling about the scooters that somebody had left under, under his window and they were just beeping at each other and he's ah this is some kind of like you know i think mating call or something can they just leave and so that got me thinking like what if these scooters had a sort of artificial biology to them like they were rewarded for getting back themselves back to their charging stations and they were rewarded for the moving themselves to a place where they could maybe collect a rider and do a fare. And so I kind of figured out how that would work. But 
the scooters, of course, they have their flaws too. And as they're not rewarded for exactly the things that people would want. So they, the two scooters would tend to misbehave because they're acting in their own interests. And uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun putting that together. And you have like artificial, you have boring scooter gangs that are like protecting their turf and you know, we've got the three beeps versus the beep boops. And yeah, I had fun with that. Yeah, it was pretty good. As booksellers, we, of course, are interested in whether an AI will ever be able to write a novel. Mm-hmm. And certainly in um, from the technologies that you describe, that question of long memory, that that difficulty of holding things over a long period of time, in memory seems like the big challenge. So how hard is AI writing a novel as a problem to solve? And is that something we see in our lifetimes? Yeah, I think the problem is writing a novel that anybody would be interested in reading. Because uh, we can generate novel-length <laughs> That's enough text. of a problem for humans. <laughs> I know. We can generate novel-length text, but the problem is if we've trained it on existing novels, it's going to try to write like the average novel. And so even if it manages to be coherent over the paragraph, you know, over a long period of time, it's going to be sort of boring, generic, boilerplate stuff. And right now we also still don't really have the memory. If you're using one of these big uh, algorithms that can keep about 2000 characters in memory at any one time, even within that length of time, it tends to drift a bit. And so it'll kind of, it's, it's like being in a dream or something. It'll forget where it is or what it has done or what's in the box and new characters will show up. Like it has a tendency to like start drifting into fan fiction if it's doing fiction. <laughs> and then like all of a sudden Frodo shows up and like, oh, no. Two last questions for you. First, you asked an, uh, an algorithm for a recipe and it came up with horseradish brownies. Did you try to make them? I did. And I would not have uh, even attempted it had somebody not uh, messaged me and said that they tried the horseradish brownies and they were delicious. And, you know, I had questions. So they, oh, no, no, you don't put in hor- straight horseradish. You put in horseradish, you know, dressing, the cream, horseradish cream stuff. And that is what makes it okay. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And I knew I was in for trouble when, like, I opened the oven and my eyes just started watering. <laughs> like, they... They are, they were terrible, like distressingly terrible. Like I had no idea how much I hated horseradish until after these brownies. Uh, And I learned that there are some people who feel the same way I do. There are some people on the other hand, like this person who recommended I try the recipe who absolutely love horseradish. And so I've had a a couple of the people I've set, served it to keep asking, oh, when are you going to make those delicious brownies again? And <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot to induce what to induce me to do that again. Yeah. And then before we go, I found one good AI joke. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Human. What do we want? Computer. Natural language processing. Human. When do we want it? Computer. When do we want what? Yep. 
Okay, that's good. That's it. That's all I've got. No. <laughs> <laughs> Janelle Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I have been speaking with Janelle Shane, author of You Look Like a Thing and I Love You, How Artificial Intelligence Works and Why It's Making the World a Weirder Place. You can find it at Kobo and Conversations, home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link in the show notes too. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin, and we're both relieved that it sounds like we're not going to be replaced by an AI anytime soon, though it might be fun to try Thank you for listening.